I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 87 of Carol Pop. Have I mentioned that I'm interviewing the great two-time Oscar-nominated actor Michael Shannon on stage at the Club Space in Evanston? Get tickets now for our live July 31st Carol Pop event at evanstonspace.com. Shannon, by the way, reprises his role as General Zod in the new movie, The Flash. Our Carol Pop guest this week is one of the indie label heroes of our time, Dave Robinson. If you're a fan of the best British new wave music, as I am, you're grateful that this Irish native co-founded the label Stiff Records, where he managed and signed Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, and Ian Dury. He also signed The Damned, The Pogues, Kirstie McCall, Tracy Ullman, and Madness. He managed and recorded Graham Parker and connected him with The Rumor. And he directed Madness's inventively manic videos, including One Step Beyond, House of Fun, and Our House. After all that, Robinson had an adventure on a larger label, Chris Blackwell's Island Records, which bought out Stiff and made Robinson its president. Island, the home of U2 and Steve Winwood, was in bad financial shape when Robinson got there in 1983, but he worked his magic to turn the company around. He pushed Frankie Goes to Hollywood into the stratosphere through bold branding and marketing that propelled the smash singles Relax and Two Tribes. Robinson also oversaw Legend, the Bob Marley compilation that posthumously catapulted the Jamaican singer into global superstardom. Legend remains the best-selling reggae album of all time. So why does Robinson consider his time at Island to be a mistake? Speaking from his home in a town outside London, Robinson is one of the music industry's great storytellers. He tells of early encounters with the Beatles and later path crossings with Paul McCartney. Van Morrison was Robinson's flatmate in the 1960s and a bad one at that. As Jimi Hendrix's tour manager, Robinson saw firsthand the challenges faced by this gifted guitarist up to his death. In the early 1970s, Robinson managed Brinsley Schwartz, the British band led by singer-songwriter bassist Nick Lowe and named after guitarist and previous carol pop guest Brinsley Schwartz. Robinson set up a circuit of British pubs in which Brinsley Schwartz performed, thus spawning pub rock. Does Robinson agree with previous carol pop guest Graham Parker that pub rock is a meaningless term musically? Robinson co-produced or produced the first four Brinsley Schwartz albums, up to 1972's excellent Nervous on the Road. Now, Robinson is managing and producing another British band, Hardwick Circus. Led by brothers Johnny and Tom Foster, Hardwick Circus follows in the tradition of Robinson's smart, eclectic, tuneful bands. Its second studio album, Fly the Flag, comes out June 9th and is the first album Dave Robinson has produced in about 50 years. How much has producing changed between then and now? Oh, and why was Robinson arrested in Spain, and how hard was it to convince Declan McManus to change his name to Elvis Costello? Robinson reveals all that and much more in this very entertaining Carol Pop conversation. Enjoy. Great to talk to you. It's uh, You've come up in various uh, conversations I've had with other people, and uh, I had Graham Parker on, and uh, Brinsley right. Schwartz, and Steve Goulding, and I just read Chris Blackwell's memoir, and you're all over that. And I've been listening to Hardwick uh, Circus, so you're still at it. Good. Good, Mark. Yes. I hope they were kind, those people, oh, talking about me. Absolutely. Um, It's interesting that you're that you're uh, producing and managing a band again. Is that something you expected to be doing at this point? It's hard to imagine, really. I've never really looked much further than a couple of weeks ahead, really. I'm uh, terrible at uh, 
predicting calendars and trying to work it out. I thought I'd be in music to uh, to the end, whatever that is. You know, I did think so. I've uh, it's really all I've done for fifty odd years. Going back into, you know, the cycle of recording an album, you know, trying to get it out into the world. The Hardwick Circus sounds in line with stuff that you've been involved with, uh, you know, whether it's madness or quote unquote pub rock and, you know, just sort of tuneful, topical, you know, songs. But it's a very different era than it is like than it was like in the mid late 1970s. Like, how is it sort of getting back into those waters and trying to look at this like I'm I'm doing the thing that I do, which is putting an album out into the world. But the climate is so changed. It's much more difficult now. Uh, finding a young band and trying to progress them these days is a very difficult uh, process. We were blessed with the uh, the idea of singles, of uh, vinyl singles and the fact that you could uh, convey them through the radio to the public because that's the essence of what you do really you find something good you kind of help them to develop it as well as they can and then you put it in front of the public and ask them to decide really to like it word of mouth uh, and those things are, are much more difficult. With with the although we've got a lot more communication, music inevitably, as you know, has dropped back in a focus, so to speak. You know where it was, the one thing you needed to know was what band did you like and what music were you into. Uh, that's that's dropped down the uh, ladder quite a bit. But there's still a lot of people who would like to get into music and are don't know anymore how they might do it. Uh, radio doesn't do what it did. And in England, it was it was always TV had a big effect. So making videos and doing the before, even before MTV, uh, there was a lot of uh, national station, TV station that had new videos by people and a lot more people saw it. I always say the word of mouth is the way forward, but you've got to start with somebody other than your mother. So uh, you've got to get a crowd around you to start it all off. Hardwick Circus is a good example because they also come from a town which is 400 miles away from London. And that uh, crimps them a bit because going live, they've got to do an awful lot of miles to get anywhere. So, Did you think that this is something you'd be doing at this stage, uh, you know, getting back into this end of it? No, no, I was kind of semi-retired, doing uh, compilations, doing best of kind of stuff for some of the major labels. And I wasn't really planning to find another band. But you never know. You've got your eye out all the time. My son located this band and he wanted to be their manager. He liked their music. He got me to come and see them. And I thought the music was uh, potentially very good. The songs were good. That's my interest. Uh, and then his uh, photographic career took off. So I was there holding the baby, so to speak. And you're a photographer also, so he's following your footsteps that way, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's a great. He's very good. Very, he's very, very good. And yes, he, he is pretty much covering me in this way. So photography took off. I had agreed with a contract with the band with him 
but I was planning to be the instructor. He was going to be the worker. I was going to supply the right. advice uh, department, counselling. Uh, and so now I've taken that off as well. The, the band are incredibly good. They're, they improve constantly. Uh, songwriting, playing ability, uh, lovely guys. And so what's not to like, really? Did you produce this new album as well? Yes, yes. But that I was asked by the band to do that. I think they thought they would have more uh, influence than an outside producer. So they asked me, and I couldn't turn it down. I'm, I'm not produced anything for years. So yeah, I did about 36 albums, yeah, in my younger days. What's the last time you produced an album? Let's see, 1972, 50 years ago. Yeah, Nervous on the Road was 72, the, the Brinsley Schwartz album, so. Yes. Well, that's about, yeah, that's about it. What is different about producing a record now than then? I'm sure that a lot of the, the equipment and stuff has changed. No, not really. I mean, Pro Tools is a much quicker method. But you're, and you're recording digitally, which I don't love. I, I would prefer to be, uh, you know, distorting on tape. <laughs> I enjoy right. that system. But um, that's that's what we've got. The Pro Tools is great. I'm in the studio with a gentleman called Pat Collier at the moment, and uh, we're doing a live album. The band recorded a live album about a week ago in uh, the Pizza Express, uh, big company here, mm. and they have live venues, and they wanted to do a live album on untapped, I call it. So we're just mixing that. But uh, Pat is great. He really runs around the Pro Tools very quickly, and we know each other. He made uh, eight albums for Stiff, so we go. We both go back quite a long way. Do you think the album is still the album? You know, as sort of like the primary, you know, way for a band to express itself. Yes, I think so. I, I do think that the album has something to say, even though people are, you know, more into tracks. Perhaps the general population perhaps they're into just a track at a time in some cases half a track but i think an album is a different thing um i'm into the uh all killer no filler kind of department right. and uh, i think all albums should be greatest hit the period when the major record companies uh had a, had a single hit and needed an album to make their money and therefore added a lot of stuff that uh, wasn't that great to that album, thereby ruining many generations of people who felt they'd paid for one single track that was good. I think that was a disaster. You know, they pushed the price up. It was far too high compared to the, you know, the musical experience. You can't put a price on that, but I'm talking about the physical goods. And they pushed it up too hard, uh, too high, and... Um, I think knocked, uh, knocked quite a reasonable number of people off the marketplace, so to speak. At what point was that happening? Well, that was very much in that early 70s. After in America, AOR radio, you know, and vinyl was very much a part of the game. When the CD came in, it became far too easy to add a load of B-sides. Right. That's true. Well, and CDs kind of, I feel like they undercut the concept of the album because like the album is like a 40 minute, 42 minute expression. It just seemed about right. And when it was like, when you had like these 70 minute albums that weren't, that didn't feel like double albums, they just felt like really long albums and there's no flipping aside or, and there's no kind of demarcation between the different sections. It just kind of got draggy. So I feel like the return of vinyl 
like lately is helpful because it's getting people to make their 42 minute albums again. It's also the two sides. Two sides were good because you could have two different atmospheres that you could, uh, that you could get by having the two sides. So, right. Um, yeah, I, I'm a real fan of vinyl, a good price, nice 12 inch size, uh, of thing to read and also to do other things on. We can't go backwards, really. We we have to keep going forward and find a way through the the minefield, and that's pretty much what uh, Hardwick Circuit's doing, what I'm doing with them. But um, yeah, I, the music is you know the music is there and the music is good. I like the songwriters. I like people who can write about. Folk music, I suppose, Mark, to a degree. Uh, I thought the Beatles were, you know, Liverpool folk music. So I, I like the the essence of not just the bearded people like ourselves who go shush at at clubs and things. Madness, I thought, were folk music from Camden Town in London, and 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 I look for those albums. They they are a, a milestone. They're something that points out the period and and still very good. So I enjoyed making this one. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of fun. It just comes out now, so we'll see what anybody thinks about it. But it's uh, I think it sounds pretty good. What is it about right now that you think is right for this band, maybe? Well, everybody's got to be live now. So live music has, if you're a musical, if you're a musical player, I think that uh, the bands have to go out live in order to increase their following. Uh, and to do that, the kind of music that we're interested in is still more or less the same. Andrew Lou Goldwyn, who the Rolling Stones early manager, very right. bright, very bright, sharp guy. He said that record executives of major companies, major record companies, if you give them a can of beans, they're interested in the can. And I thought, I thought that was very apt. Because right. that's, that's how, to my mind, it has always been. I've always been interested in the songwriter and the music, and major companies may or may not be that. They're interested in the success ratio. The other thing that uh, we have very, very recycling kind of um, style packages. So you, so that's the music revolves around different kind of styles uh, in England, particularly. The style is pushed by the major record company if they think they have some new stuff. Now, with um, the current kind of download of the music, the streaming, the majors are having a field day. You know, they they don't distribute anything anymore. They don't manufacture anything anymore. They just send out files and the money pours in all the time while they're asleep. King Gillette was a man who made things that we don't use so much anymore. But uh, he said he loved his business because he got his money when he was asleep, because that's when men's hair grew. And and that is pretty much in my analogy that I like to use now and then about major record companies. The catalogs, great catalogs by people that they don't even remember in a lot of cases and certainly aren't rushing around to find out who they are or the grandchildren of the people who wrote great blues songs and other songs. Uh, majors is, is very much a business. There is, there's not a good deal of art in it in my book for quite a long time. At what point did you realize way back when uh, that you wanted to be in the music business? I think when I run a club and that once you have a place that depends on the music coming in, that's good. That was a focus. 
the photography, I took a lot of pictures of bands that had no money, who were poor and struggling, but still traveling and trying to play. And so I thought it was a very interesting thing. Life on the road is fun. I'm, I am a traveler by nature, and I like I like that liveness. So I, that's what I've been doing. I've been touring. I'm still touring. I like it. I, you know, while while one is able to do it, I think you know I'll keep on doing it. I mean, my my wife thinks I'm crackered, but she's right. I am. <laughs> How long did you work with Jimi Hendrix? Uh, two two years and three or four months uh, before uh, he unfortunately passed. Uh, I had left to come back to England with a band called The Air Apparent, which is an Irish band who supported him on quite a lot of his tours. Uh, it was quite handy. I, I was the tour manager for a while for him, and the band were his support. So it was a, a very tight little arrangement. We got on very well. And, uh, you know, I discovered America. I mean, I came pretty much straight from Ireland to America to tour. And it was, uh, there was no criteria. There was no security at gig. There was no, there was no anything really. We, we invented it. The people who came out after the Beatles, the animals, them, and uh, Herman Thermans, the people who came after them and toured the country, uh, by by car or by van or whatever, rather than aeroplane, uh, and they they are the people I think who formed the market that we know and understand now. American music was always very interesting to English people, though, because in England um, kind of deals in theatrical music mainly and uh, kind of cabaret to a degree, kind of rather shallow entertainment from time to time, although some of the people were very good. But all the bands in England, Queen, uh, The Who, various, various bands were all mainly uh, theatrical, mainly showtime. It was uh, clever tricks right. uh, rather than, yeah, the music seemed to come from America having having been filtered through the Europeans who went to America and a lot of the Irish and Scots who um, went to various places there and brought their folk music with them. So it's a, it, it's interesting to look at the music generally. Bob Marley, the reggae is a good example. They got their music really from New Orleans or from the south coast of America. And I think it used to fluctuate. And that's where reggae, to a degree, or ska came from. The signals weren't... Um, weren't true. So in England, we had a station called Radio Luxembourg, and you never had a strong enough signal. The signal was was quite away from England. So when you had your little transistor or your or your crystal set, the, the, it went in and out. And I think a lot of uh, reggae, I, I've been told by lots of friends in Jamaica, that that music from the uh, south coast of, of America fluctuated quite a bit and, and may may have been the start of reggae so it's our oh, that's interesting yeah. with hendrix was he someone who was challenging to manage or was he was it exciting was it uh difficult he didn't really have a great idea of how it went he had signed several agreements uh, in the days when he, he played the Shitland circuit in America, the kind of uh, lower black gigs. And he learned a lot of his, uh, not his playing, but his entertainment bits, the biting of the guitar, playing behind your neck, you know, that all, he got all that from playing with Little Richard and various other um, people on that kind of circuit. 
he didn't really, like a lot of, at that time, I don't think major groups understood uh, the contracts that they were signing in a lot of cases. They didn't really have legal representation uh, proper, proper. And of course, they signed a lot of agreements in dressing room just before they went on stage when the manager or somebody would say, you're on now. Oh, can you just sign that before you go? And a lot of contracts were signed in that way. The groups I found when I went to America with Jimmy, he was asking me, "What? how does the money go? And I said, I don't know anything about that, Jimmy. I, I, you know, I've just come from Ireland. I know where we're playing tomorrow. And I have a schedule of what to do with the money that I get from promoters on our way. But uh, I, I don't know what your contract says, and I can't really. And I thought I, I'll find out. That, that, that Being asked those questions meant I must find out how this goes, because if I'm going to continue in the music industry, I'm not going to play, so I should know these things. you know. And uh, I did. I, I kind of studied it. But I was amazed by how little stars knew. Jimmy didn't know where his money was. He'd signed a couple of agreements that cropped up when he became a famous and he never really got a great deal of money because those people were constantly getting an override from his income. And when Chaz Chandler uh, resigned because Jimmy was dreaming of space music and Chaz was pretty basic, somewhat like myself, I think, to a degree, he, he just wanted it to be rhythm and blues and easy to understand. He he made the first album. He produced it, and Hey Joe, etc. So he and he and uh, Jimmy uh, had had a lot of arguments, and I think Jimmy made a mistake in getting rid of Chaz because Chaz was there for his benefit, whereas Mike Jeffries, who was Chaz's partner for a period, was there for the money. And you know, if you're with people who are there for the money, and you're on the road all the time. Who's looking after the shop? Yeah. Right. Did you see Jimi Hendrix sort of growing artistically from, you know, show to show, tour to tour? Like, were you like, at the time, were you like, oh, I'm in the presence of this immortal guitar player who's going to be remembered for decades? No, I didn't. I didn't get that feeling. And I I got slightly the opposite feeling that he would... He was... Um, it was the days before guitar tuners. It was always... The question of Jimmy also with the twang bar that he had on the, the on Fender right. Stratocaster, um, you know, and we and we tried. I, I went to Fender with the idea of them sponsoring him, and they didn't want to. Uh, but they gave him twelve guitars, and they uh, some of them had different kind of spring arrangements. They were trying to deal with his technique against the tuning that they had uh, worked out in the first place for their guitars. Uh, I was amazed they didn't want to sponsor him. He always had a guitar in his hand. He had a guitar. I, I tell a story. He had a guitar or a blonde woman in his hand at all times, uh, sometimes both. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he was overworked and under thought about his, his art was not uh, worked on. Chas Chandler would have and did work a bit more on the musical end of it, whereas the record company and the ma and his manager subsequently didn't. They didn't understand it. They didn't care to. They thought you went out on the road and you you loved it because you were an idiot. Really, <laughs> I always thought that people didn't appreciate what these guys could do and what they did do and how you you got to be a great player by really 
pushing forward an awful lot, rehearsing and, and practicing a great deal to become something great. They always seem to think that you just arrived as a star, as they put it. I, I came up with the idea that a star is a person that nobody tells the truth to. Mm -hmm. So when they call you a star, they're actually belittling you to a degree. Jimmy was great, and he could write a lot more. He wrote, he wrote a lot of tunes, but he didn't like his voice. And that always inhibited him. I couldn't. I thought that some of the lyrics were fantastic, but um, I mean, yeah, he he was the, he was the real deal, and he didn't. He wasn't really appreciated by the business that surrounded him. Yeah, I, I saw somewhere that you had lived uh, with Van Morrison for a while. Yeah, Van came, and uh, I was, a, a, as we discussed, an early photographer for a magazine called Rave Magazine. And I, I photographed them at an early stage for the magazine. All the kind of the people in the chart, uh, you would go out to do their, their photograph. So I knew Van uh, from Belfast as well, coming from Ireland, the 26 counties known as the Republic and the north of Ireland, which is connected to the UK. And that's always been the problem in, in Ireland was these two, uh, this kind of, border that uh, got in the way of the um, of, of people getting along. Most of the people in the north were of Scottish descent and most and all the people in the in the Republic were obviously Irish nationalists. 600 years of, of problems up there. Uh, Van, Van was from the north and he was he wasn't very politically minded. Uh, he only was politically minded to do with music. He had uh, a record collection, which I was lucky enough to be invited into his house very early days. And I had never seen any of these records. I thought I knew a little bit about music, but uh, he had a great collection and, and he didn't talk a lot. Uh, Van is not a, he's not a man who, uh, who does chat, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't talk a great deal. Right. And so he played music all day long. Um, he came to me when he broke up with his manager in England from them, when, when he found uh, what he thought that them's, uh, income that they were all getting in the band was coming from his songwriting and he probably write. Uh, he he downed tools and uh, split the band up. He came back to Dublin, well, to Belfast. And, you know, Belfast is not a town that you return to if you've been a star, so to speak, and you're now declining. You don't go back to Belfast or Dublin for that case. So he came down to Dublin. I had a club going and he came down to play at the club and to look for another manager. And he thought he thought when he met me that I might be it. But I was I had no idea about management then. I was a photographer running a, a beat club and uh, invited him to stay at my flat. And he, you know, he, he ruined my social life, really, for uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a period. I would not recommend him as a flatmate. But every now and then he would get up with his harmonica with some of the bands in the club and play. And the remarkable thing is the band would kind of move up two gears at least. You know, the band would would suddenly be better than they had been before or after. Van had this great ability 
of pushing the band musically. And eventually I encouraged him to go to America and meet uh, Burt Burns, who uh, had already made a couple of hits for him. And I said, you know, I can't do anything. This is where you need to be. Maybe selfishly on one hand, I wanted to get my flat back of apartment, you know. Why was he such a bad flatmate? Well, small talk. He didn't have any small talk. He was very grumpy. And if people tried to indulge in good morning, what's the weather like, or anything other than music or musical instruments, he was he was very non-committal. He was, you know, slightly angry. He was grumpy. He was not a, a great uh, communicator from that point of view. It's a reputation that has followed him for the last 50 years. So before he was even big, he was he was known as grumpy. Well, it's quite it's quite true. He's always been a little grumpy. But when he found that, uh, which he did with Warner Brothers, he found that uh, his first four albums with Warner Brothers did very well. You know, Brown Eyed Girl had set him up. And um, but Gloria, them, all those early songs. He then got the deal at Warner Brothers, and I watched him from afar because I was curious about him. And um, he discovered how the system works that his money that he had earned on various albums was being given back to him through recordings. In other words, the, the company paid. For for the recordings with what he considered rightly, probably his money. And then they owned the record. And he, he thought, hang on, hang on. He's like that. You know, he, he thinks about those things. He, he also is Scottish enough to think about money. Van knows how much money he has all the time. He, um, he didn't, he disagreed with it. And Warner's, he downed tools for 18 months and went off and worked on building sites in California. And of course, Warner thought, "Oh, he'll he'll be back." Uh, these people always want to; they want to play. That you know, they're addicted to it. They'll he'll be back, and he wasn't back. And so eventually, they had to make a deal with him that he um, would get back his other out, not these four, the four big ones, um, Astral Weeks, etc. He he didn't get those back, but all the rest of his material, they gave it back to him in 15 years. That was a deal that he could reacquire it in 15 years uh, on the basis that, oh, he won't be around. He's a grumpy old git and, and he won't <laughs> be here. But of course, he is here. He was he was here and he is here now. He's, um, he's special, really. I mean, the genius and he's also you know, an incomplete human being, shall we say, just like all the greats. There you go. So I saw an interview with you where you, you were uh, talking about, I think it was when you when you were managing Air Apparent, and uh, you, you're saying, so three months in Spain, lovely son, nice apartment. Unfortunately, I got arrested and ended up in jail. And then there's no, then it doesn't say anything more about it. What what did you get arrested and end up in jail for in Spain? Well, it was uh, Garda Seville time, Franco in Spain. And uh, we were having a great time. I mean, getting that uh, trip and going to those, playing three clubs a night, the band became very good. As in the Beatles in Hamburg, they got really good then. Their songwriting ability, once they got that good, they started writing well too. Once they had that remarkable kind of grip on the music, they they then, I think, that encouraged their songwriting, which is my my uh, angle a lot of the times. So in Spain, we were having a great time, three clubs, um, and we got the gig because supposedly the band were Irish. Mike Jeffries, Hendrix's uh, manager, owned three clubs in Mallorca. 
off the, off the coast of Spain. And um, Spain wanted to get back to Gibraltar, you know, so they uh, stopped English people being able to work in Spain. So the groups couldn't go there. The groups that Mike Jeffries depended on each summer to go down to his clubs in Mallorca, because he had a great business there, the very big touristy area. So he wanted a sudden Irish fan. So he heard about, they weren't called the heir apparent then, they were called the people. And he said to me, are they Irish? And I said, oh yeah, no, they're definitely Irish. I didn't tell him they were Northern Irish and had British passports. So I had to rush to Southern Ireland and try and convince the Irish embassy to give us uh, Irish passports. Well, I had one, which they will do, but normally they take about four or five months to get one. Uh, once you've established that, you know, your parents were born in Ireland, even though Northern Ireland, in Ireland, the Irish are quite protective of Irish. So it took a, an effort to get it, went to Mallorca, and there was a couple of South Africans who were dealing a bit of grass, you know, something quite innocent kind of stuff. And as the manager of the band, I would go to collect it to their house. And it turns out that an awful lot of people were going and they, and they were all being filmed. They were all being video, well, film in those days. Right. And then one day they decided to pick everybody up off the street. So 35 people suddenly in two very unpleasant cells with a hole in the floor for the latrine, that kind of oh. European uh, basicness. And uh, they uh, people were leaving the cells and they never came back. So gradually I'm down at the bottom end of 35 people. I'm now my turn. And I thought, what to do? So the Irish passport, the uh, Southern Irish passport, is half in Gaelic. So I decided I could only speak Gaelic. I didn't <laughs> understand English. I didn't understand Spanish. And so for three days, because they, they put me back, they wanted to talk to me further. I spoke in, in Gaelic. Uh, at school, I had learned quite a bit, but I couldn't. I remembered it. But by, by the end of the third day, I was becoming quite fluent. So... Uh, <laughs> I was whisked out of there and put on a plane to London. And I'd been there for three or four days. So I was very homeless smelling and pretty, you know, there was no toothbrushes and things. So I got to England. Mike Jeffries, who was Henrik's co-manager and eventually entire manager, had the rumor said, been in MI5, the, the intelligence, uh, English intelligence thing at some point. And he was able to pull a few strokes. I think it was money, though. <laughs> Just a bit of money changed mm -hmm. hands. And uh, off I was uh, taken to England, homeless, uh, shoeless, smelling like a thing. I had a, <laughs> lot of, a big gap around me on the aeroplane. And I didn't know that I'd succeeded in escaping. Because the rest of the people I learned later went to Spanish lunatic asylums. Wow. They were seen as drug addicts. And so they were, uh, I don't know what happened to them. I never met any of them again, but that's what I believe had happened to them. And I escaped. Gaelic saved you. Yeah, the language, you know, the Irish, that's one thing they're good at. Finding a way to get forward, to escape is, is, is part of our nature. Summer and beer, they're a natural pairing. That's why Revolution Brewing has brought us Sun Crusher, a juicy, refreshing summer ale. 
With bright citrus, lemongrass, and floral notes, the taste is lightly sweet and crisply refreshing. The name is a nod to the Chicago Brewery's solar roof panels, which offset more than 50 tons of CO2 every year. Suncrusher is available wherever Revolution Beer is sold. Look for the can featuring Chicago's North Avenue Beach. Go to at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. So early 70s, you, you were managing Brinsley Schwartz. You were producing the records. Yes. Um, did you come across them because you were you know, running pubs and they were playing there? Or you know you heard no, Nick Lowe? No, it was the other way around. I used them to form the circuit of pubs that I booked all the other bands into. It was their uh, ability to pull a big crowd into a pub that then caused landlords to accept the idea of having uh, simple musical things and and uh, groups playing three sets a night. I like all that. And the majors called it pub rock. It was a it was a throwaway term to say it wasn't worth anything. Really, <laughs> when they said pub rock, their music was much more extravagant. You know, there was uh, lighting and velvet trousers and colored haircuts and high heel boots. You know, whereas uh, pub rock was the lower end, but where Stiff Records came from. It came from the ability of those people who could write, who could write songs. Do you think pub rock is actually a musical genre or was it just a description of bands playing in pubs? That's right. I, I don't. It wasn't a genre only insofar as it was down to three minute songs. We had got away from the 15 minute in the key of E rubbish right. you know, with everybody just out of, out of it and watching the bubbles on the wall. We got down to a bit of folk music. Yeah, and I asked Graham Parker about it, and he hates the term pub rock. It just really rubs him the wrong way. I know, I know, it does, it does. But he was an exponent of this style, and he kind of bridged between what was happening and punk. He was the bridge. He was in the new wave with uh, Elvis Costello. Or uh, Elvis, of course, was called Declan McManus, that's his name. And uh, his father was a lead singer of a very big dance orchestra in England called the Joe Loss Orchestra, who played kind of club music, you know, young, it was uh, dance music in big venues. And Elvis um, learned all his father's stuff. His father had to learn the chart each week, so he had all the records to learn uh, the lyrics and the and the songs and when he when he learned them he gave them to Elvis or Declan as he was and Declan learned them all so Declan's uh, depth in music is quite large very large compared right. to an awful lot of other people and it's come out over the years too obviously that's that's the point people say how does he do it well that's if you think about it that's that's a lot the essence of it you know you name a song and he could play it he he learned it like his dad every week so, so he was declan and so you and jake rivera you started stiff and i don't know were you both managing elvis at the time too yes we signed him up for management at the time and we found early on that it was best or it was very useful to be the manager or or that the band should not have a manager the kind of managers they had are very inexperienced and so they would essentially get in the way. They were like a logjam on a constant basis. They didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, I had had the experience of America with Jimmy, 
And uh, Jake had been a tour manager for Dr. Feelgood and had done an American tour. So all those kind of things helped us to uh, get Stiff going. There weren't a lot of managers and we didn't encourage bands to get them because they weren't useful. They were just wanting meetings and wanting to get in the way. So was Jake the one who came up with the, you know, changing your name from Declan McManus to Elvis Costello? And were you guys surprised, surprised that he went for it? Oh, I was amazed that he went for it. Jake came up with Elvis. Elvis had just died about two months uh, earlier. Uh, he said, Elvis, I said, he'll never go for that. And should he? Uh, Costello was his wife's maiden name. So I came up with the Costello. He came up with Elvis. And I got. I came up with the, gla- the Buddy Holly glasses because Elvis Declan, Declan Elvis, did, um, uh, he had r- rimless you know, and they, they didn't suit. As soon as he got the, the Buddy Holly glasses on, suddenly it looked like something. And, of course, the name was extraordinary. Elvis did not bat an eyelid, and I was always amazed by that. I thought, what would I have done? He was very good at allowing us to manipulate. Uh, it's, that's the wrong word. But to, he wanted to be able to make records. Uh, he'd been to every record company in England, and he'd sat in their lobbies in some cases for days, and they hadn't shown the slightest interest in him. I don't know, Declan McManus might not. His name was Aloysius uh, Patrick McManus as well, into the bargain. So right. people, but people are listening to the same material we were listening to, and they just weren't seeing it. They just didn't see it. But that first album, which Stiff made, My Aim is True, that's, the band on that is a band from Marin County, a, a really hippie band called Clover. Right, Huey and Lewis's band. Huey, yeah, exactly. Huey Lewis yeah, eventually adopted most of the players because he was the harmonica player, and he took most of the players in the band off to his uh, new uh, group. You know, John McPhee, who's in, still in the Doobie Brothers after all this time, he's the guitar player. People go, who is that guitar player, that simple no fat, all lean guitar playing. And it's John McPhee, lovely guy, still in touch with him. He's great. I was very into, and still am very into Elvis Costello. And and I remember picking up, I think it was a bootleg called Our Aim is True. And it was kind of early recordings of his. And you can hear him kind of developing from what you would consider the pub rock sound, even though pub rock's a a BS term. But, you know, a little bit more that sort of laid back, sort of R&B influenced. And kind of Van Morrissey even a little bit. Well, he's a big fan of Nick Lowe. Of course. Whenever whenever Brindley Schwartz went up to Liverpool... Uh, he'd be in the front row with his mate. Uh, he was a big, big fan of Nick's and Nick's songwriting. He was in a band called Flip City during during the uh, pub rock period. We have to call it something like that, um, which is the mm, 72 to 75. Well, the band were no good at all. He was good and the band weren't good, but he wasn't good enough to overcome the poorness of the group. Also, the group never drew any, they weren't very sexy. They never drew any uh, people whatsoever. Uh, So one night I had a studio, which I built at the Hope and Anchor. I wanted to be a better producer. So I built a studio. I thought that would help me to see how the music could be produced. And uh, I asked them after an empty night at the Hope and Anchor where there was 10 people, I said, have you got any songs you could you want to record? And he said, oh, yeah, I've got a few. I said, I've got a studio upstairs. You know, when you're finished, if you want to come up, 
uh, we'll we'll record a few. And I think he recorded 28, mm-hmm. one after the other. We were there till four or five in the morning. And I gave him a tape of that later, later in his career. And that became several of the album. I noticed that several of the tracks or some part of them was he had rewritten, he'd cannibalized them again and he had right. rewritten around them. So a lot of those tracks uh, turned up on his next four or five albums. You ever going to put that out? Just the original recording there? That would be pretty cool. He's very prolific, uh, Elvis. He's just so prolific. I mean, you know, I try and tell people now, including my current uh, Hardwicks, uh, Elvis would write 12 songs a day. I mean, he would be writing till he had to go to bed. He had a book and he wrote all the time. I mean, you'd say something and he'd write. You thought, what did I say? What was it I said? What clever thing have I said that he's going to use in a song? He he wrote all the time. So he always had thousands of songs and song ideas. So much more than other people, it seemed. Much, much more uh, and, and useful, usable stuff. But he was he was driven to be a songwriter. When you and Jake Riviera started Stiff, did you see it as like a label that was going to be, you know, a label, an indie label that was going to, you know, live on and, and you know, have a roster and have an identity? Or was it more just like sort of, uh, you know, a, something you started as sort of a, a project and see what happens? Yes, it was a hobby, really. We, I, I was into being a manager. What drove it was a couple of things. A, I had a lot of tapes from the Hope and Anchor studio that, that Elvis was part of. I had discovered Graham Parker in that studio. He had come along with a load of songs and I'd found musicians to back him so we could hear them all together. Um, The second thing was that uh, the majors were so useless. At the end of the day, I was uh, several of the people I was looking after got record deals. And I always thought, wow, you signed a record deal. A, you got some money, which is nice, a bit of an advance to get some better equipment, buy a van or something. But also that they knew something that you didn't know. They were they were professionals and they would have great ideas. When I found really that they didn't have any ideas particularly, um, that encouraged us into the idea of a record company. So instead of signing acts that would then be signed to major record companies, uh, why not sign acts that you would then put on your record company? And of course, there was radio at that time. John Peel was a, was a remarkable uh, DJ. And I don't know how he got it. I never understood because the BBC are very tight with their DJs and their producers and you have to play the playlist and you have to do this and you have to do that. He he got an unlimited kind of late, very late night slot where he could do what he liked. He could play what he wished. And his producer, a guy called John Walters, were great. Now, I had met uh, I had met John Peel at all the kind of benefit festivals that cropped up around 1970. 1969, 1970, a lot of benefit festivals for every known hippie benefit area or people wanted to open a club or something happened, you'd go and do a fe- their festival and they'd give you expenses. And the DJ was always John Peel. And so I had a great relationship with him at an early stage from because Brindley Schwartz did a lot of those to get the work to play in front of a lot of people. I put them on an awful lot of those festivals. So John Peel liked So It Goes, which is our very first single. 
which was just to, we were going to press 500. We ended up selling 12,000 very Nick, swiftly. Nick yeah. Lowe. Nick Lowe. I didn't know anything about labels, vinyl, manufacturing, all that kind of stuff. Seemed to come from left field, or the majors controlled or owned a lot of the manufacturing. And so we had to learn quickly because there was this remarkable demand. John Peel played the track. People liked it. They wanted it. And that's how Nick Lowe really uh, got going after the Brindley Schwartz had had, uh, stopped working. Right. So, yes, you had had Nick Lowe, you had uh, Ian Dury in The Blockheads, Um, you had Costello at the beginning, Um, Madness. uh, Madness later. Madness came quite a bit later. They were big Ian Dury fans, so it took Ian Dury to get going really before they, yeah. Yeah, one step beyond was seventy nine. So, um, was there was there something in common with all these these bands, and and did they sort of view themselves? I have that live Stiffs record, which is great. Uh, but did did the bands on Stiff kind of view themselves as like a team, or was it competitive among them, or just sort of they were their own things? Well, it was all those it was all those things. It was very much a family business. There was the door was open to the owners. To begin with, we were always open office. You could just walk in. And there was a family atmosphere. People helped on other people's records. Everyone was excited by the style. The style being the kind of Tamla Motown meets Fats Domino meets uh, Louisiana. The, the background of the musical adventure in America at that time, the blues were very much a part of it. Then they became competitive. They became competitive when you put them out on tours, and we were. I was very into the package tour. Was my I loved package review kind of tours, Johnny Otis and various other things that you followed. They got competitive then. Elvis Costello and Ian Dury were very competitive, and that was so good. That that energy, that kind of vibe, was so excellent. And Ian, Ian, I mean, you know, he had polio. He had a big chip on his shoulder. He he really was very competitive. Whereas uh, Elvis, uh, kind of competitive, but a little throwaway. Didn't want to really get down to the edge. Whereas Ian Dury was prepared to, and he had a great band. The Blockheads were an extraordinary band for England at that time. So that yeah, that competitiveness is what you want to produce in your record label in your. In your management, that that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that uh, edge in the music, so people keep pushing. They write a new song. They do this. They work harder, uh, and it shows. How much was sort of conquering America a priority for these groups? America was it to a large degree. I don't know why, because essentially you made a deal in America for any any amount of percentage that you thought was a great deal. You you got 10% of the most, if that, in America. America was like the record labels and the record companies all had their angles. They've been doing it a long time. The, the English were kind of infants to a large degree. Peter Grant was different with Led Zeppelin. And he, you know, he got a bit heavy with Led Zeppelin. But generally, Uh, everybody loved America because that's where the music came from and also that is a success. If you're you're Irish you're in the the 17th century and if you get to England you're in the 19th century and if you got to America you're like in the 22nd century. It was was a big step up in, in 
every, everybody had seen Hollywood movies forever and were totally influenced by Hollywood. And so America was the was the big place, was the place to be. So when Madness signed uh, with you and you guys are putting out One Step Beyond, you also ended up directing their videos, right? Yes. Had you been directing videos up to that point or was that a new thing for you? Well, it would it generally stiff. I, I hadn't been doing anything until stiff. And where you needed a few videos to send to licensees abroad, so Australia, New Zealand, you know, wherever. And Stiff had a lot of licensees. We, we had a licensee pretty much in every country. I think we had 34 different companies operating as di- 34 different labels. Part of the deal was they had to put it out in conjunction with the UK. So they had to put the same records out pretty much at the same time. So we started making videos to to show them the new band we found, Reckless Eric. Okay, we'll do a, a video. And I gave it to the recognized video makers. And they um they you know, they wanted to go to Hollywood. So they wa- they wanted to double cross you on the kind of video you had in mind and uh, you know, make a trailer for their first movie. That's that's what they were at. And I thought, this is ridiculous. We haven't got the money. And how difficult is this? I mean, I've been a photographer, so I had a, a feel for all that stuff anyway. And Madness were fantastic actors. They were very funny people. And it's the humor that I found got people. If you put a couple of funnies in the video, people would talk about that. We weren't making soft porn videos. We were making funny videos. And then MTV clicked into gear and we were suddenly on the top of the wave. They took our videos because they were better or they thought they were funnier or whatever. Uh, Tracy Ullman, we got to be a VJ in MTV and that's what made her in America. People had three months of her introducing videos. She's very funny, very witty girl. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so... So, yes, I I enjoyed the videos. And the other criteria was they were made in one day. Every video had to be made in one day because that's the only time I I could take off one day a week to make videos out of running quite a complex, quite a varied record company. I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube just like watching all those videos after I realized that you directed them. And they're just like a lot of fun. Yeah, they're very expressive and they suit the songs as well. Well, I thought that was part of the deal. I thought that when you ran a record company, you were like a partner. Um, All the contracts that I ever read said, we are not your partner, major record companies. We are not your partner in any way. We are kind of employing you to a degree, but we're not your partner. I thought it was about partnership. I thought the band would... uh, learn to write songs, they would learn to play them, they'd learn to be live, they'd learn to be on television, they'd learn to do videos, and all of that would make them without them having to really change their clothes particularly. They didn't have to tart themselves up or or do cabaret in order to be successful. I thought they could be really proficient and professional. And people have, you know, uh, and I've, the thing that's always given me a lot of pride is the fact that the staff of Stiff all went on right through the industry and did fantastically well with other people. And they would say to me, what did you give these people? What is it that, yeah, well, we used to change their job every six months. So they got all, you know, they'd be in marketing, they'd be in this, in production, they'd be, they'd learn their job and be proficient so that they could deal with, you know, a bad word, pop rock, 
and make it into something that people yearned for. We, you know, I thought the music was very important. I think it is still. And I want people to have good music. And But also, in order to make it work, they have to be able to sell it. You have to be able to show it in its best light. You have to get on stage and be quicker, better, more in tune, more happening than other people. You have to, you have to be proficient and professional. I thought that was useful. The, yeah, the video was part of that. When, you, when you've made a video and you've listened to the track 40 times that day while people are filming little angles of the video, at the end of it, you really know that song. You could go out the following day and play your own song even better than it was when you recorded it. There's that, that kind of repetition and that kind of interest is I, I'm fascinated by. It. I'm fascinated by how people get good at something and get better and, and get their finest uh, effort on canvas, so to speak. Right. So so you, you build up these feelings about major labels. Then in the early 80s, Chris Blackwell and Island come in and they bought half of Stiff and and you became, you're sort of running Island Records and Island was not Warner Brothers and that they saw themselves as sort of more of a maverick, large independent record company. But at the same time, it was still a large record company compared to what Stiff was. So like, how was that transition for you? Well, it was a mistake. You know, I, I turned Chris Blackwell down uh, three or four times. He kept coming back to the idea. He'd obviously, you know, he's a very driven individual in his own sweet way. I knew him quite well in terms of going to lunch or having a chat with him or, you know, staying at his house overnight kind of thing occasionally. He tried to find a key to unlock me to run his label because it turned out the label was in terrible straits. They had no money. And, and I, it never occurred to me. I, I'm kind of a bit focused. I, I didn't look at a lot of other record companies. I didn't really listen to that much other companies' music. You know, I like the people I like as a, a lay person liking music, country, reggae, and various other things, just like anybody else. But I was running a record label, and so, I thought Ireland were doing great. Ireland, to me, were a model of an independent record uh, label. In the beginning, he did remarkable things. He had his own agency. He had his own management company. He had his own publisher. He had all the ingredients. And so when you signed to Ireland, you got a comfort zone. You got somebody behind you that would help you with everything. And it was great. It had declined over a period of time, because Chris's interests had declined. He wanted to be in the movies. He, he, he'd he got bored, really, with the record business. And so he was living in Bermuda quite a bit, or in the Jamaica or Bahamas. And so he wanted somebody to come and save his record company, uh, because he was thinking of getting rid of it. And that's, that's, when, he, that's when he thought me, um, you know, I mean, I was the stiff was doing very well on an ongoing basis. We weren't jumping up over the mountain, but we were going up the side of it fairly steadily. And um, and everything we found, um, major companies uh, did the survey, and like a lot of businesses, ten percent of what they did paid for everything else. You know, there's an awful lot of losses and groups you've never heard of again. Blah blah blah. Stiff had a had about a 70, 72% I worked at success ratio. And that's a lot. That's a quite a remarkable ratio because we cared about it. 
It was important. We didn't sign people because somebody else wanted them. We signed them because we wanted them. And so that was a difference. And, and a lot of them were not obvious. So we, you know, we had great slogans, undertakers to the industry, you know, all that kind of uh, fun stuff, you know, to uh, a stiff, let's face it, it's a stiff. And people still talk about stiffs. Uh, so we started there and improved on that little matter. So a month later, I went through the accounts of his company and said, you're broke. I mean, you're seriously broke. Also, he was supposed to buy half my shares. He eventually persuaded me to do it on the basis that he would sell Ireland three or four years down the road. And with that, maybe Stiff would go as a package to be Ireland and reggae and some of the rock they had. And to be Stiff as a, a pop, a popular kind of rock kind of label. And so that's, so that's what I was working for. That's what he sold me. Let's get together. Let's do something good. We've had two labels. You know, maybe I want to go into movies. I don't know what you want to do, but let's get in together and see what we can do. And, um, you know, I foolishly went along with that. But, you know, what, what can you do? And then it was a challenge. Then it was, can I save this record label that I've loved all my life and uh, do something that would be useful? But they had nothing. They, Robert Palmer had left. Stevie Winwood hadn't been paid. U2 hadn't been paid and were kind of sliding. All their stuff was gone. Bob Marley had died, unfortunately. All the reggae stuff was splintering around the place. So it was a challenge. And unfortunately, I, I am addicted to challenges. So was it a mistake for you, but not a mistake for him? Because it seems like the label rebounded after you got there. Um, oh, yeah. No, that was his very biggest year. 1984 was the biggest year in Ireland's history. And that was because of me, really. But it was me marketing. They hadn't marketed the company. They hadn't, you know, Bob Marley always thought they were doing it wrong. I also, Bob Marley always appeared to be in, in camouflage, militant gear. He looked, he looked like he didn't like the white world or something, although his songs were extraordinary. And I thought, why is that? Why are they presenting him in that kind of nature? The other geezers hadn't been paid for some time. So that was a whole different ball game. I mean, he'd had some great stuff on that label. And uh, he, he admits that he didn't like you two at all. In fact, you know, he only took them because two of his staff got the hots for them uh, at some point. Uh, he had a great year. He had a great two years with me. And we sold everything. Uh, he, I wanted him as well to sign. If he was going, if the four-year plan was going to come into operation, it meant we had to acquire some new stuff because all the old stuff had either gone or was lapsed, or we'd used it, or we'd sold it. Um, you know, I put you two on television. They they had never really been on television. I I bought TV ads for them. Blackwell was outraged. He thought he's a kind of frugal guy when it comes to. He thought, well, the band just like a major. He thought the band should go out and play a lot, and that'll do. That's how they'll form a mark, and that's how they'll sell records. Whereas I thought, no, nah, no, nah, it's got to be more refined. You've got to you've got to have a different attitude. So that's when we kind of. You know, that's when we split up. Uh, he, he supported a, a, a musical thing in Washington called Boom Boom, I think it was called. And he, he right. two movie, two movies, and it wasn't there. I mean, you could see how it might be, 
when you'd gone through reggae and you thought, oh, I did kind of had a hand in that. Maybe boom, boom, I can have a hand in. But I couldn't see it. I couldn't hear it, the music. It was not very melodic. And if you want to do something big, you go, melody has a big part to play. So he also wanted to make some movies and he started two movies, but he ran out of money. He didn't, he never, he never researched movies like his, his luck with records was very high. He was great at that, but movies are a whole different ball game there. I don't know why people in the record business want to go into movies because unless they've got a unique talent, it's, it's, it's a much more complex and much more expensive uh, way to go. Yeah. If you have one huge thing, star Wars or something, uh, that's a different thing. So Chris never read a script from end to end. He never read them. You know, he'd smoke a bit of something exotic and read the first <laughs> synopsis. You know, and that's not how to run something. I was working on a four-year plan with him. We had we had the bones of the plan worked out, and that's where we were going. I was a little spoiled, I think. A, I ran my own record company. I knew how that went. I'd had the partner of Jake in the early stages, and he'd been very difficult but very talented. So I'd had use from him, but we'd split up at a difficult time, but I'd got past that. So... You know, in your life, there's always different stories and you don't know whether to repeat them or to find a new one or what. What is it? it you know, at a certain point in your life, you think, well, I'm done. They're all my ideas. I've used them all up and I haven't got a new one. I, I never kind of was like that. And maybe one should be like that. Were you signing new bands to Ireland or yeah, trying yeah, to at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I was going to sign quite a few new bands. There two or three bands that were up in their contracts couple of existing bands were up in their contract and would come to Ireland. I tried to use Chris. He's such a charming geezer. I tried to use him. I said, right, you go out. I'll find the bands we want. We'll agree who they are. And you go and sign them. They'll sign for you. They might not sign for me, but they'll sign for you. And I'll sign on Stiff's up. I signed the Pogues. And there was, you know, there was a few upcomers at that uh, place. So, I love the record business. I'm interested in how it works and how it should work and what should happen. It's a, it's, you know, it's a constant interest. You're still doing what you do because you have that interest. You know, it's not just a chore. So, right. so that's what that's what I wanted to happen. Did you read uh, Chris Blackwell's uh, memoir, The oh, Island? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loads and loads of people said, "Good God, Chris Blackwell's given you an incredible." CV in, in his book, The Islander. Have you read it? And I hadn't at the time. He didn't ask me. And it was, he did, that's, that's one thing that was good. He gave me the credit, which was exciting because that's what you want. And so many people who thought he was great then rub off and say, well, you must be great because he thinks you're good. You know, so it's part of, part of that kind of thing. He, he could have left me out. He left out a load of people. You know. He gives you credit for, and, and you referred to this earlier, that you had the sense that Bob Marley was being presented in this kind of militant sort of way instead of, you know, in a way that reflected the music that he was putting out that was quite universal. And so said so that you'd overseen um, Legend, 
which became one of the you know the biggest albums of all time um and it's funny because even even after he sort of recounts what a huge success it was and how it just sold millions and millions of copies in the u.s and the uk and really elevated bob marley into this other stature that he sort of didn't have before as a cultural figure and musical figure there was still part of him that was like oh but i wanted to see the revolutionary and uh, and that was like the tension there Yes, no, I, I I felt that as well. I read on one hand, you think, oh, great, that's really, oh, good, yeah, oh, that's <laughs> me. But on the other hand, you thought, what 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 is he holding back? What bit of it did he not enjoy? Um, yeah, no, you could you could read that in the words. And interesting enough, uh, the guy who uh, Morley, Paul Morley, Paul Morley couldn't stand me. He hated me. He thought I was pop. I wasn't art and various other things. So I was amazed when, through Paul Morley, this story of me came out of it. But I could hear the holdback. You could hear the holdback. It's fantastic. It's really incredible. How did it happen? But was it an ideal, really? Was it really what I would like? I thought I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I was on a college summer program the summer of '84. Everywhere I went. People had the big block Frankie say, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood, Hollywood t-shirts. Yeah. I, I didn't know Frankie goes to Hollywood and you couldn't get away from it. And that was another one of your big successes, right? Was like marketing and getting that band out. Now, Frankie goes to Hollywood. Yeah, it was a coup, really. Things fell into place in a remarkable fashion. But you got to remember that Ireland was totally broke when that record came out. I had to make that record work. Ireland would not have existed, would lasted two months after that, without that record. That record had to happen. And, I, and as luck would have it, it fell, you know, the, the script for why and how that happened is a remarkable story in itself. What was the key to it? I'd watched the record. I knew Trevor Horn quite well, and I'd watched the record, and I thought the record was extraordinarily sounding. And this is the beginning of the Fairlight computer. It's the first, it, it, that's literally the first really computer record. And Trevor Horn is very clever. It's that he would have uh, four or five, up to 10 different rhythm sections work on a record. If he, he would get a very big budget. That was the way big companies had an attitude about him, give him a huge budget. He'd get 10 people to play on and he'd take the bits from the 10 people and put them together in the record. So a lot of people would say to me, but I'm, I I, I came up with that riff or rhythm or whatever. And I say, ah, no, Trevor only used a little bit of your riff, but he used a lot of other people. So I watched the record and it got stuck in the British charts. In the British charts, if you get stuck around the 60s, 70s, the way the chart works is you, you don't survive. You go, you know, if it doesn't get go upward, it plateaus out and then it goes backwards. And the record was an extraordinary sound. Every time it came on the radio, whoa, it kind of, you thought, oh, God, that's incredible. I wasn't a huge fan of the band or anything. So Blackwell pushes me into being his MD in Ron Island. And I think I, there's a key to this record. There's a key to get this one. This one is... At sixty-five is lurking there over Christmas. Are we talking about? We're talking about relax. Relax. Yeah. 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 So it was. Uh, I had seen. I've been in New York at some point in the, in the island office doing something else, and I saw a twelve-inch dead sex mix. So I'm thinking, what what can I do over Christmas to try and 
give this record a, a jag, a go, a bump in the chart, because that's what's required. And uh, I'm porting 5,000 of those from Ireland and Europe. I, I, they had to produce them. They didn't have them because the record had kind of peaked and gone in New York as well. So anyway, the key breakfast DJ in England threw the record at the wall on, on for whatever reason, saying, I'm not playing this. This is terrible. This is rubbish. And you could hear the splintered record. You can't do it with a CD. You could do it with vinyl if you threw it. <laughs> and then the head of the BBC called me up and said, who, who I knew, he, the head of, of the BBC. And he said, uh, we're banning this record. And I said, how can, what? how can you ban it? I'd heard the guy had done the thing on the breakfast show. I didn't hear it, but I'd been told. And he said, you know, it's all about ejaculation. And I said... Ted, most of the chart is about ejaculation in some <laughs> shape or form. I mean, that's not a that's not a legitimate excuse. I said the least you can do is tell the press why you're doing it because it's ridiculous. You know, how can you suddenly, after three months playing the record, suddenly decide that it's bannable because it's about ejaculation? So he said he would, and I said, well, I've got the facilities to do a press reception this afternoon. Will you talk to the press? He said, I will, and I. I put the phone down. I did, the entire island office, 120 people, were sent to find out any journalist that they knew to the afternoon in the island uh, boardroom. And he told 179 journalists from all around the world that the record was about ejaculation and the, and the BBC would ban it as a result. <laughs> I mean, exactly. They, they, your reaction is exactly mine. I thought, bloody heck, we were pressing records in Afghanistan, practically. We, we couldn't get enough pressings um, at the time. So, you know, how extraordinary was that? And then it, Queen, it, the record jumped from 65 to 32, and Queen, Freddie Mercury, decided he wasn't coming back from Thailand to do Top of the Pops, which is the big TV show, the single right. most... And uh, and, and the, the director called me up and said, I don't want any funny business, Dave. I know what you're like. You're going to be doing something. He said, you're not to do anything. I'll give you give you the slot, but you're not to do it. So the court, I said, who, me? I wouldn't, would never <laughs> dream of it. Anyway, the boys went on then in the, in the kind of arseless chaps, you know, with their bums sticking out. And, you know, the whole of England went bananas. And of course, they didn't do it in rehearsal. They looked normal in the rehearsal. But when it came, Top of the Pops kind of was very um, schedule driven. It kind of went out as you kind of made it in the evening. And so it went to six. And when it went to six, that's when Mike Reed splintered it against the wall. And, uh, you know, then I found, which I didn't know, because I didn't have num that many number ones. I'd had Hit Me Your Rhythm Stick and uh, Dave Stewart called uh, It's My Party, Dave Stewart Records. I'd had two number ones. But I found that you could, you could change the track and keep the number, keep the catalog number. So <laughs> we changed it four times. The record kept... People wanted the set then. They now had the T-shirt. They had the record. It 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 viraled. It did absolutely. Um, you know, it's great, really good. And the record was terrible. I mean, welcome to the pleasure zone was appalling. And Trevor <laughs> went off was off his head about 
you know, we, we managed to make three tracks off the record number one. I think it was Live Aid that knocked uh, our, one of the big charity records, knocked the, the uh, third one off. But it was number one for one week. So the, the album was terrible. A double album with Born to Run and various other things. You know, he had three single ideas. Trevor was kind of ahead of the album idea. He had the track, the single tracks, but he didn't have the didn't have the big thing. And, and the band kind of burnt out, you know. It was uh, but they'd had huge success and they'd sold I I think the biggest ship of a double album in the UK was one one million two hundred and fifty thousand in one week. And it was because I thought it will never, once people hear this, they won't want to buy more. So I essentially shipped <laughs> as many as I could, kind of a log, bit of a log jab in, in the thing for a while. But it's, it's also how do you sell, you know, Bob Marley, how, how do you get the public to really hear what you think you hear in this guy? That, that's what the record business, that's the marketing end of the record business. I've got this great track. I want you to hear it. I want everyone to hear it. How can I? The breakfast show in the morning, top of the pop. How do you focus everybody on one record? Aside from radio play and things that nowadays don't happen. Right. It's interesting because you have like U2, which is sort of your classic group that kind of built and built and built, uh, you know, like the first few albums, you know, each one did a little better than the one before. And it was really like album five when they were became huge. And then you have something like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, where you have these enormous singles, but you also, maybe you could tell me, you know, maybe you had a sense there. This isn't the band where you're going to be like, oh, album five was the great artistic leap. No, single, uh, one, a one track album would have been great. A single record, single album, there was enough material to make that good. But Trevor had very highfalutin ideas about it. And Chris Blackwood encouraged him. I was... I was anchoring him. Uh, Chris and he were having late night conversations about let's take over the world and give them whatever. I'm I, I can exaggerate and I can become excited about something, but you have to steady up and think what is the career going to be like? What's going to happen? What's it all about, Alfie? So, what prompted you finally to part ways with the Island? They didn't pay my bills. Uh, the two companies were hooked together accountancy-wise and several other departments, you know, to economize when you get two, two uh, companies together. Uh, and they didn't pay the bills. I, I, I had worked extremely hard to pull that company out of the, you know, whatever I felt. And, and then to find over the Christmas of 1984 that they hadn't, they were now in charge of paying the bills because they were like the senior partner you know, and I wanted to, the idea was I would work on Stiff the second year that I had, you know, I'd done. My, I, there was five or six bands that we should have signed, but Blackwell didn't want them. And he found five cheaper bands that were no good. I mean, he'd lost his knack. He'd lost his touch. You know, I'm all for, you know, and so, uh, you know, they got into some fun. He, he pushed some money down a couple of movies that were no good that the people had run out on and he had to put his own money. No, he had to put Ireland's money that Ireland now had in the bank because we'd, we'd righted all the creditors and everything. We had made, I, I think we'd made 60 million or something like that. Yeah, it was a big year for Ireland. Yeah. And so um, we paid off all the debtors and we'd got things working. And now we would, now we would sign 
some really interesting uh, band, maybe a couple of big bands that from another from other labels that have run out of time where they they would be re-signing now or they would be going somewhere else. So we'll do those and uh, and we'll find some new ones and then eventually after a few years we would sell it. Who did you want to sign who you couldn't sign? Well, I can't strictly say at this point, but there's a couple of really good uh, company. One of level level forty two. Yeah, uh, yeah, level forty two. I thought would be great. Ireland had a lot of dance uh, people in the company. They had a lot of good dance people. Uh, they had a sort of a side issue, big dance. Not 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 my favorite area, but we had. Couple of people who went on to run Virgin in Ireland, uh, Ashley Newton, Ray Cooper, they they went on to do very well. Um, and Level Forty Two was one of the bands that were coming, and there was uh, two others. And then Simple Minds was was another one. Their their deal, they had one album to give, and that was it. They would come. Uh, Blackwell was a real key to it. I mean, he was. People loved Ireland and wanted to be there, and now I was making it work. So you know, people were saying, "Oh, I hadn't thought." The Dave Domney, I remember, a poor man, he's gone now. But Dave Domney had been in Ireland twelve years, and he said to me after I've been there seven months, and he said, "I've been here twelve years. I've never got a job offer. Now I've had six really big job offers, and I'm staying because of you." So I like, I, you know, everyone's pride has a kind of a moment. I got on great with Dave Domino. He'd been very supportive. Isla didn't like me when I went there. The the people didn't like me. They felt I was jumped up, kind of smart alley. But I was as musical as they were. You know, I had been brought up on Ireland to a large degree. So in, in the post-Ireland years, what would you say was sort of the highlight, you know, between like then and now, just in terms of what you enjoyed the most? I did a lot of consultancy because obviously Legend was a was a very good uh, door opener, uh, and I wanted to do some more. Recently, uh, about uh, six years ago, I came up with an idea for uh, Gregory Isaacs. I really like roots reggae, and Gregory Isaacs is not a Bob Marley. He's not uh, political, but he's a very good songwriter. He writes songs for women. He's a, he's a women's writer. He's very good at a great voice. And I got this package together and licensed tracks and got it all in, but I couldn't get anyone to put it out. And uh, I said to a couple of people from a big company, I said, this is my follow-up to legend. (laughs) This is something that could do very well. It won't, you know, it's different times and the, the size is different, but this is a very big record. Very, very, he wrote some great tracks. So I, I found that the British record industry is not good at uh, remembering what you do. Although Stiff now this year has been remarkable. I've gone out and done one-man shows and had a great uh, response. But my, my, uh, my demographic are dying off, unfortunately. They're passing on. You know, so come a time when there's not a lot of them left. But they all appreciated elements of Stiff that were... You know, that I can, you know, I like too, kind of thing. They kind of commemorate the question and answers of being fantastic as, as part of the one man show because people will get into the nitty gritty of a, of a record that I remember what made it, what what door opened to let us get in with that. Right. And, and I, I like talking about those things. 
Well, the reissues market has gotten so big and one of the advantages of the stiff catalog is that it still sounds really great. Like there's a lot of stuff from the mid eighties where you're talking about the fair lights and the synthesizers yeah. and the drums and stuff like that, where you're like, ah, this is so time stamped that it just doesn't sound good. Whereas you put on my name is true or so it goes, or, you know, those Ian Dury and the blockheads records, the damned, um, that stuff all sounds really fresh right now. And, it, you know, if any does. band could sound like this, you know, now that would be great. Well, they're they're cheap records. They're very cheap records. But the the ethos of Stiff was have your song ready. You know, work it up before you record it. And we the studio where an awful lot of those records were made was a little eight track. You could hardly get into the control room. It was that period of the indie recording. As well, some great uh, produce uh, engineers and simple stuff. It worked well in the song, therefore it was easy to record. A lot of stuff is difficult to record because, in, in essence, it's not very good, or you're trying to polish it up. What they call polishing the turd, right? <laughs> you know. Whereas I, I, I'm very pleased with that. It stands up. The music does stand up a lot of it. I'd read that as a photographer, you'd shot the Beatles before they were the Beatles, like that they were even. Big. Did you did you keep in touch with Paul McCartney over the years? I kept in touch with him for a different reason. I didn't keep in touch with him when uh, I met him to do that uh, photo shoot in Liverpool. But uh, I managed to get Brinsley Schwartz on the Wings tour, on the first Wings tour of the UK, by going and seeing Paul. And I reminded him about the photo session, but you know neither of us remembered it too well. Um, and so he took uh, an unknown band, Brindley Schwartz, and put them on the on the wing, first Wings tour. And that was fantastic. And and I kind of, I mean, I should have recorded it. I should have written it down. I kind of debriefed him for five days in the back of his coach. I kind of talked to him about every element of the Beatles that I was interested in, which was a lot. Um, and he candidly answered uh, every single question of what it was about. I asked him at the end of it, I said, why? As everyone does. And he said, look, Dave, it's uh, I'm as successful as I could have got. And, but what am I going to do? I'm going to, what, go on holiday, meet every girl in the world. What, what, what is it I'm expected to do? You know, I'm a bass player and I like being in a group. So I'm able to form one, but at the same time have an organic kind of feel to it, hopefully. And that's why I'm doing this. And I always thought, well, that's sensible. That's straightforward. And, uh, you know, you could imagine having a great time, have a farm, have a house here, have a... What do you do that gives you the satisfaction of enjoying what you are? Well, and you had that band Air Apparent in the, the 60s. And Henry McCulloch yeah. was was in the band, and then at least at the beginning, and then was the he was the guitarist for Wings probably at that time when Brinsley Schwartz is opening for him. That's very that's very good. That's the connection you you found us straight away. He secreted me into the uh, the dressing room at Top of the Pops when Paul McCartney one of his records was in the chart and he was appearing. So he he said, "I've just joined the band, Dave. I've no pull with Paul." You know, and he's his own man, but I can get you in. And that was it. I remember getting to the door. Uh, Paul McCartney answered the door with Linda looking over his shoulder. And I had a great speech. I had it absolutely. It was so wonderful what I was going to say. He'd want to have 
given my band the support on the tour immediately. And of course, as soon as he opened the door, my, <laughs> it fell on the floor. The whole speech fell out. And I'm looking gaga at Paul McCartney, you know. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, but he, he stayed with me. And um, and it's great. He, he's, a, he's a great bloke. And uh, he got Hardwick Circus onto Glastonbury last year. Nice. I, I called him. Yeah. So you he, guys are still in touch. Oh yeah, yeah, but it's you save it up. You you know that you're not, you know. But he'll greet you from across a crowded room and remember who you are. That's his. Ta- he has a great talent for knowing and remembering people and being a very nice guy, being simple. You know, it's like when you meet him, you don't you don't think anything. You think it's Paul. Yeah. Are you going to get a Hardwick Circus over to the U.S.? I'd love to. That's what I'd like to do. But the visa. The American visa problem is quite difficult unless you achieve, particularly now, because it's so hard to achieve a big status. You've got to have a kind of a status um, now. It's, it's all changed with the emigration and all, uh. you know, the, all the stuff that's gone down, some ter- terrible stuff. But I'm, I'm working on it. I mean, Hardware Circus, great band, great blokes, and it would be marvelous, I think, if they could play in America. I've got, I have a lot of friends in the States. A lot of people would help. Uh, I just need to get the visa. Have you any pull, Mark? Um, no, but but I but I but I'll definitely help bring people out when you get here, and I'll and okay. I'll show up too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, come on to good. come on to Chicago, and uh, and we'll good. we'll show you around and get you some good food good. and and good. publicity and and everything else. No, it's exciting, and I'm enjoying the album. Um, you've I feel like you've come full circle in a way. You know, you could just again, you could hear like a lot of those sort of Motown and like horns and things like that that were in, you know in albums you worked on in the '70s, but it also sounds you know, up to date. I hope it works out. I think it's cool that uh, that you're still doing it. Yeah, I hope you make it over here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Mark, I- it was very nice. Yeah, really enjoyed it. That's all for episode 87 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Dave Robinson for bringing us so much great music over the years and telling so many excellent stories about having done so. Hardwick Circus's new album, Fly the Flag, produced by Robinson, is out June 9th on digital, CD, and vinyl formats. Go to Hardwick Circus TV, that's H-A-R-D-W-I-C-K-E dot TV to listen to, order, and get more information about the band's music. Side note, I really enjoyed going down the YouTube rabbit hole to watch the Robinson-directed Madness videos, and you will too. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who always gives you reasons to be cheerful. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Tickets are on sale now for my July 31st onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evansonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks. Thanks.